Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Sebastian Marshall. Sebastian is the Operations Director at Whiffaway Group, a market leader in the development of waterless urinal technology. Seb, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. No problem at all, Scott. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure having you. And um, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader in isolation, just for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? How does it, how does it resonate with me? It's a, it's a very good question, Scott. I think Leadership is something that requires a decent amount of, obviously, integrity um, and continually improving oneself. Uh, I think that's an absolute key to leadership um, so that you can show people that you're, well, you're able to accept change within business. I mean, look at this current time, which I'm sure you'll touch on briefly. I mean, there's lots of change going on uh, and being able to pivot um, your business uh, to suit it. So, Leadership obviously has many, many different facets to it, but I think at the moment in particular, those are those are key. Mm, very key indeed. And uh, there are a couple of important points to, uh, to take away from that. Um, the first of those points was the fact that it's a constant process of development and learning, as you mentioned there. Whenever the finished article, even in leadership roles, are we? It's still very much about learning. And even as leaders, we're still bound to suffer a setback or two. And I think one of the biggest setbacks, as you rightfully said, is the one that we're going through now and having to really sort of cushion the impact of. Oh, indeed. It's awful at the moment. I mean, it's uh, it's quite something what it's done to to business uh, across the board, but also sectors that we work in, the aviation sector, hospitality sector as a whole. I mean, it, it's dreadful. You know, it's not what you want to see uh, ever uh, within our, our business lives, and I don't think we'll ever see something quite like this again. So, uh, lots of learnings to take from it, though, and lots of dare I say it, opportunity um, off the back of this uh, from a business standpoint. Uh, and I think. You can't be caught flat-footed in these situations. And I think, again, from a leadership perspective, that's what we want to look for. We want to look for striving for growth, striving for different areas of growth, perhaps. Uh, Again, looking outside of our core categories of interest and looking towards things that perhaps help, obviously, for a sustainable future. We're we're an environmental company. It's part of our ethos. But also looking at ways in which we can help combat this dreadful virus and, and hopefully help some people along the way. COVID-19 really has posed them a great deal of challenges to business, but one of the positives that has come from this awfully challenging and very tragic time is the fact that it's forced the hand of business to really innovate and be flexible. It seems that that's very much the case at a Whiffaway Group as well, looking to sort of branch out into various different things. But notably, you mentioned that you are an environmental company, and one of the big things that's come out of this period as well is a renewed focus on sustainability. And that's certainly going to yep. be interesting for the future as well. Oh, it definitely is. I think sustainability is obviously it's not going away. In fact, you know, we're our planet is slowly but surely aging, and uh, to certain degrees, we're killing it, aren't we? So we need to do what we can to help support uh, the environment as a whole and uh, and increase sustainability across what we do. Uh, and that goes again, again for all businesses, whether you're selling a photocopier or you're selling, you know, urinals like we do as, a, as part of our business. You know, it's it, it, it's it's important to promote sustainability from within. Uh, and try and do that from the grassroots of what you do as a business when you walk through the door or whether it's the product you send out. So it, it, it's very, very important indeed, Scott. 
And during this crisis, we've also heard some incredible stories of how people have really applied themselves and gone above and beyond to keep things ticking over, whether they have been furloughed and they've been involved in community activities, whether they've continued to go in working on site, whether they're working on the front line, or even whether they've had to adapt to remote working in the way in the face of this uh, pandemic too. Would you say that you've been inspired by the way that the team at Whiffaway have applied themselves as well? Oh, 100%. We are made up by a fantastic team here. It's not myself and my co-directors. It's it's the whole team that do it. And to be honest, we never thought we could um, work under working from home and people working remotely and things like this. We we obviously have field workers as part of our role. We're, we're a service business. So we have many people out in vans and in cars going up and down the country doing our, our jobs and services. But as a whole, we're, we're an office-based company. We have around about 25, 30 people in our office here in High Wycombe uh, and a warehouse opposite, uh, which which also houses a, a number of people. And so we were wondering how on earth we were going to deal with this, uh, well, with this working from home impact. Uh, and I've got to say hats off to the team. I, I was nervous, you know, being perfectly honest. Uh, I didn't know how we were going to, to do it. We never, we'd always liked this idea of perhaps going into some form of flexible working. But again, we're a service business. It's quite difficult to do that, operationally in particular. Um, and uh, I've got to say, hats off to the team. They work diligently. And also, the, the level of trust we put in them, because again, we don't have all sorts of, we're not Procter & Gamble. You know, we're not a big company here. We're we're a small business, a family-run business that, that's growing and growing, thankfully. And, uh, and we have a wonderful team that are doing us proud just by that. It's just as much from a leadership perspective about those around you as it is about you, isn't it? And it really seems as if the challenge of showing leadership from a distance is something that you've really been able to embrace at the uh, the business. And technology, of course, um, will have taken um, a quite a large hand in uh, making that possible, I can imagine. Oh, yeah, d- definitely. I mean, all the ways in which we can remotely work, I mean, buying everyone laptops and things like that, again, it was expense we weren't necessarily... Uh, eyeing ourselves up for but it's something we had to do and we were we were thankful that we managed to get there i think before uh, all stocks and sales ran out of, uh, of of laptop computers and things like that so we were able to at least get people literally in inverted commas sat behind their desk albeit from uh, probably you know underneath the covers sort of thing but uh, it was uh, yeah they, they did a remarkable job the team and, and i just uh, I can't commend them enough. In fact, they're not all back yet. We're obviously slowly but surely bringing people back and we're doing sort of shift pattern work, Scott. So we're getting people in sort of like an alpha and beta team um, so that if, uh, God forbid, there's any uh, any sort of issues with, with people falling ill, uh, we can easily self-isolate a select team so that it doesn't affect the entire office. So again, trying to do what we can, learning day by day as to the best way in which to deal with this situation and this pandemic um, and also obviously pushing our business forward uh, every step of the way. And transparency and clarity are two very important facets of uh, leadership as well. And I can imagine it's been sort of quite difficult to demonstrate that yourselves at this point, just because when you're when people are looking to you as leaders to provide reassurance, it's quite difficult when you may not necessarily know that much more information than they do. And also, there's been a great deal of debate as to just how clear COVID secure guidelines are, which will help businesses operate in the uh, the new yeah, normal. Yeah. Would you say that's also been quite a challenge at this time as well? Oh, of course, of course. Again, on a daily basis, you know, we, we've we've had to set up um, groups in order to sort of to talk to everyone within the office 
out of hours, you know, to tell people what happens when perhaps a press briefing is done or anything like that, because there's an immediate plethora of questions that come out from uh, from from any government uh, uh, conference of any sort at the moment where they discuss uh, discuss everything to do with COVID in these briefings. So it, it has been very challenging. We've had to be very out frank and uh, outright frank and honest with our with our team and say, look, we don't necessarily know the answers right now. We need to read up a bit more. Uh, and I think it would be it would be wrong to just assume that we knew exactly what needed to be done. We we had to take a measured approach in how we we tackled those problems from a working standpoint, and then also from our customers. You know, uh, a huge amount of our customers shut uh, over the course of, of this pandemic, and, and thankfully, uh, a lot of them are now opening. But we also we deal with the hospitality sector, like I said, the aviation sector. In fact, indeed, we deal with a lot of airports and things like that. They're they're obviously crippled by this. Uh, pandemic. And uh, well, we need to get this company obviously back off its knees and, and allow the economy to help hopefully right some of this uh, this mess that this dreadful virus has caused. But um, obviously, it needs to be done in a measured approach, a measured way. And I think I, I wouldn't want to be in government at the moment. It's a, it's a very difficult time. It's unprecedented. Nobody knows the answers. Everyone's going on, oh, I I believe it could be this, or we, we should probably look to do this. There is no precedent. You can't make those sorts of mm. assumptions, and that's all people are able to do at the moment. And, uh, and so it is a difficult situation. So for any business, large or small, you need to take these things and, and, and sort of, forgive me for saying it, but almost roll with the punches. You, you've got mm. to sort of deal with it on a, on a minute-by-minute, let alone day-by-day basis. It is an uncertain time, isn't it? And it's really tested the ability of businesses to be proactive and have measures in place, but also be able to be reactive as well. And this period of self-reflection has shown us that we're not infallible even as leaders. And we are, of course, going to maybe get one or two things wrong, especially now. But it's about essentially doing the best that we can and also learning from the setbacks that we do have, as we've rightfully mentioned um, already. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we 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 want to learn as much from this as possible, and and hopefully put some more some more things in place within our business that allow us to be more robust than we are. I'm I'm very proud and grateful, and I find you know it's, it's hard work, but also good fortune that we've had in 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 the way in which we've overcome uh, what at the beginning of this pandemic anyway was was pretty dire. You know, we saw obviously a lot of customers, like I was saying, closing their doors temporarily, uh, but albeit indefinitely. Um, and and in in that regard, we were worrying about our core categories of interest. You know, like you were saying, we're we're in water conservation, waterless urinal technology. Uh, we service customers up and down the country, so we needed to pivot, and we we moved towards infection control. So we uh, we provide uh, sanitizer solutions, touch-free units where you can obviously sanitize your hands, um, and it's all proven uh, has proven efficacy against developed viruses including coronavirus SARS etc so we've been very fortunate in having that relationship with and having a bit of proprietary uh, information and uh, some IP on certain things uh, within that space uh, and so our infection control range has really sort of shot through the roof uh, over the last uh, eight to ten weeks and that has really helped us underpin our business whilst our core categories like I was saying before have, have obviously dwindled whilst uh, customers have been shut. But now that we're seeing that uplift, we've actually sort of, we've doubled up a bit. We now have this new infection control line that is going crazy. And we now have our our core categories coming back to full strength or near enough. We're at about 90% um, at the moment. It's lovely to see, um, but doesn't mean that we're out the woods quite yet, Scott. 
Mm. And that is all down to adaptability, of course. And if we do think about the future, because we're certainly not out of the woods yet, as you say, Seb, uh, what do you envision over the next year for yourself and for the Whiff Away group? And what do you really hope to achieve as we move through this COVID-19 pandemic, hopefully emerge from the other side and then really begin to look to the future, the long term and what this new normal is going to look like? Well, so one of the things we developed and, and in fact won some awards for over the last 12 months was our, our smart bathroom capability. So the idea, Scott, to make a bathroom tell you when there's a problem, uh, that can obviously cost a lot of money to implement, but it can also save you a lot of money in OPEX, in, in ongoing cost of having to get people perhaps to come and look at certain assets to see if there are problems. Now, we're taking that a step further and using it to promote social distancing. So you have almost like a traffic light system before you go into a bathroom, which will tell you whether or not it's safe to go in because it's reached capacity. Perhaps there's more than X amount of people in the bathroom, therefore you can't go in. So we're trying to sort of take our business and, and again, pivot that approach a little bit towards what's going on at the moment. I don't necessarily think social distancing will stay in its current guise for a very, very long period of time, but it will most certainly still be there. This has changed our world. There is, as everyone keeps on saying, there is a new normal uh, upon us. So it's, again, moving our business into this time, this new um, this new period that we're going to be going into and making sure that we're promoting our core categories again, what, we're, what we do and what we do very well, but also looking to our customers and saying, what do you need from us? You know, we're we're looking as well at social distancing from our standpoint. Again, looking at, at a urinal, Scott, you have to uh, potentially cover over every every other urinal because there needs to be social distancing. That could affect revenue for us and things like that. So it's ways in which we can help our customers promote this social distancing aspect, but hopefully not lose uh, lose out whether that be revenue or customers in that in that standpoint because we're able to to adapt and overcome and perhaps offer other services and other uh, products that will help bolster their efforts um, to deal with this sort of thing. And I think it's going to be fantastic to see what sorts of innovations the group comes up with over the uh, the next year or so. And you know, Seb, I think given how informative this has been from a listener's perspective, I think it would be great if sometime in the next year we could even catch up and have you back on the programme to discuss exactly that because it's been fantastic having you on the air with us today. It really has. Scott, I'd love to, yes. And uh, we're also excited. You know, there's, there's obviously a certain level of trepidation, but nonetheless, we're, we're very excited. We've managed to come out of this stronger than we could have ever imagined. So now it's putting that hard work to good use and making sure we can we can really do do the right thing, do the good thing, and do something that's going to really make a difference. That, that's what we want to do. Mm, and it's a very noble ambition indeed and let's hope that certainly it can be carried out uh, for sure um seb it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the air with us today and i can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your views with myself and with the listeners and most importantly in the meantime until we do catch up again i'm sure do take care and do stay safe with all still going on at the meantime because as you have said we're not out of the woods with this yet thank you scott likewise thanks very much that was Sebastian Marshall speaking, Operations Director at Withaway Group. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, a well-known former England cricketer, Sir Andrew is currently the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. However, during his time as England captain, he became one of only three skippers to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia, joining a very illustrious club. And he is only, well... I should say he is the second highest winning captain for England in history. Second highest number of test victories in total. 
incredible, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. And I hope you really enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that is coming up just now. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Trescothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Trescothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years Of of age I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger 
that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah i, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... Uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, I think it was the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, (laughs) like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but uh, i did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you're privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism 
uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually. The most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to 
make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyoke Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so, I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become 
an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help... Uh, Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know... we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... Uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... a uh, very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- 
for us to have that extra element of the the red for Ruth there, and to see the the wave of support. You know, it's probably it was just I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.